Or we'll be in the, in the book of Mark, chapter. Follow along. Uh, we get there. Uh, but first, I'm just going to pray and ask the Lord's blessing one more time upon his word. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you. Uh, thankful for your word. Uh, thankful for the the light it is, the nourishment it is, and the power that it has. And we do pray that you would illuminate your truth to us, uh, nourish us spiritually, and empower us to live out your calling upon our lives. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Before we get into Mark, I'm actually going to read from a passage in Ecclesiastes. You don't have to turn there. You're probably quite familiar with it. Ecclesiastes 3, uh, beginning in verse 1, to everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck what is planting, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to gain and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear, a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. I begin there as, I, as we put our focus back in Mark, as we read, uh, Pastor Lynn read, uh, beginning in the chapter 9, you know, we saw the, the going up the mountain of transfiguration, the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to pick up the narrative in verse 9, as they come down the mountain. Part of my thought with Ecclesiastes, well, as they're coming down, what time is this? Kind of made the point the last time we were in, in Mark here in the Mount of Transfiguration that when you're at a mountaintop experience, that is often a time to enjoy the moment. To take it all in, soak it in for what it is, for what the Lord is doing at that particular moment in your lives, that experience that you're involved in. So what kind of moment is this coming down the mountain? Apart, I see it as a time to reflect. I'm going to jump right in and say that. Time to reflect. To reflect, to realize, to consider, to even make manifest or apparent. To think. There is a time for all these things. We think if you've ever had moments, we've all had different moments in our lives that we may call mountaintop experiences or just exhilarating experiences. And maybe at those times we did enjoy the moment, we, we soaked it in. But then what after? Now I don't know about you, your different experiences. I have been, had the, the, the privilege to go on a couple different mission trips, to to be at Northern Grace Youth Camp, and uh, many other things. All these many times were mountaintop experiences because I saw God at work in my life. Terrified (laughs) at the same time. 
remember the first time I, 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 I decided, I felt the Lord leading me to take the first trip uh, to Brazil. It was the first mission trip. And I agreed, and I told Dr. Nix, yes, I'm going to go. I want to do this. I've really felt, been praying about it, and I feel that's what the Lord wants me to do. The moment after I agreed to do, I thought, my goodness, what have you done? What have you agreed to? It's happened a lot of times. <laughs> Committing to BBI, what have you done? <laughs> what were you thinking? Agreeing to speak at Northern Grace Youth Camp, are you out of your mind? Ten messages? <laughs> Madness. But each time, just seeing how God worked in that. But each time, the moment came and went. Now, each time, there was a moment for reflection. A moment to take stock in what the Lord did, what took place. I think of the first mission trip. Dr. Nix was very good about making sure we had, I uh, say, our I's dotted and T's crossed. He's that kind of man. You <laughs> know him. But part of it was so that when we went back to the churches, back to our fellowships at home, that when people asked us, well, what did you do? What did the Lord do? You, we could clearly say, we spoke at these many churches. We saw these many individuals come forward to accept Christ as their Savior. We gave this many testimonies. Kind of a, a real world, rubber meets the road, what took place. There was a time of debriefing, as it were. Time of evaluation. I saw that even at camp. When camp is done, the exhaustion of the summer over, those on staff are to write down what took place, to evaluate the summer. Even the counselors do that as well. Evaluate what took place. What did you see God work in your life and in the life of your campers and staff? Different things. And what a blessing that was to be able to look back and discuss amongst yourselves, even think and what you saw take place then. And partly that's what I see here taking place in Mark as they come down from this experience. Coming down, we see in verse 9. It says, Now as they came down from the mount." Coming down. He commanded them that they should tell no one the things that they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Part of it, as they're coming down there, you can imagine they're having conversation, they're talking, and the Lord gives them a command. There's a time for instruction. Think of that in different things, different ministries I've been involved in, that after these moments take place, there is a time for instruction. What do we do now? The experience is in the past. What do we do as we move forward or moving away from it now? What kind of responsibilities do we have at this moment, at this time, with what just took place? There's a time of instruction. A command is given. Tell no one. <laughs> I always find that interesting. At different times, the Lord told them to be silent. Don't talk about it. However, I think, you know, they just saw something so profoundly miraculous. 
the Lord Jesus Christ transfigured. They saw the very power of God shining through him, so to speak, standing there having conversation with these two giants of the Jewish faith, Moses and Elijah. And that if it couldn't get any more dramatic than that, God the Father shows up and speaks from heaven itself. Wouldn't you want to tell somebody? I'd be like jumping down the mountain, skipping over rocks and boulders going, I can't wait to tell Thomas. Ha! Man, he ain't going to believe it. Kind of thing. And the first instruction the Lord tells is like, okay, when we get down there, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anyone what you saw. Now, there's always a reason for it. The Lord doesn't give things frivolously, commands, just because. He doesn't want to rain on their parade, so to speak. There's a reason for it. Again, a time for everything. And the Lord's timing is perfect. It always has been and it always will be. It begins there, a call to obey. A call to hear and listen to the Son, just as the Father told them on the mountaintop. They just heard that. Hear, this is my beloved Son. Hear Him. Now, in interesting contrast, Peter couldn't wait to speak <laughs> up on the mountaintop. He just couldn't help himself from blurting out. And this time he's told specifically to keep silent with a very specific time element involved as well. Don't tell anyone until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. There will be a time to tell, but not until this takes place. Now, it's interesting. Right after this, he tells them this. Not telling anyone until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. In verse 10, so they keep this word to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead meant. So they keep this word to themselves. They were questioning the command, considering it a time to think. Wow, rising from the dead. Okay. But they were thinking and wondering what it meant. What that meant. Now these guys believed in a future resurrection. But they seemed perplexed every time the Lord Jesus Christ brought up his death and eventual resurrection. You know, we could quote, if you don't have to turn there, in John eleven twenty four, when the Lord comes to raise Lazarus from the dead and he meets Martha. And he's meeting her, talking with her, and she says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. They knew that there was a future resurrection coming. But this, for some reason, always seemed to perplex them, what he was talking about, what he meant. And I was wondering, is there some alternate dual meaning to this word, rising from the dead? There's a play here uh, of any kind. I don't, I'm not a Greek Scholar, <laughs> I rely heavily <laughs> on, on, the, on the reference materials for this, but I could find none. 
But I find it interesting, was there anything there? We know in other languages that there is sometimes that aspect there. There's a man at work I talked to, he studied German. He even went to, uh, there's a, a German immersion school here in Milwaukee. Studied it all the way from like first grade up until eighth grade. Went to Germany uh, as a foreign exchange student and came back and, and grad, and in his high school years because he took German, thought it would be an easy class, kind of was. But one of the assignments his teacher gave him was that he had to translate All Quiet on the Western Front, for those of you who know, was originally written in the German. He had to translate it from English back to German. And what he found, again, he thought, well, easy enough. But what he found was some of the word usage in there was illuminating. The word trench in German is the exact same word for grave. So in that book, when they're talking about digging their own trenches, there is this poetical imagery of digging their own graves. Now that doesn't necessarily have a lot to do with what we're talking about right here, but it made me wonder, is there anything like that going on here that would have perplexed these men? The simple answer, no. It's pretty straightforward. Dead means dead, risen means risen. Now, the Lord did use the same word to illustrate the, the spiritual deadness of an unbeliever, but it was based on the physical reality of death. So, pretty straightforward. So one still wonders, what was the problem? Well, I think the simple answer is they were stuck on what they believed about the Messiah. They kind of had this, again, the Messiah is going to come with power and set up the kingdom and everything is going to be grand and glorious. And the idea that he's talking about suffering and dying just didn't compute. Just didn't compute. Sometimes, have you ever gotten tunnel vision? I think some people, you know, we get it physically. Sometimes you just get so focused, you, you, you miss the things on the peripheral. But we can get that way intellectually, even spiritually. We can just zoom in. We think we know what we know. And sometimes we need to unlearn what we've learned. And that's pretty much, I think, the case with these gentlemen. They thought they had it figured out. They thought they knew what was going to take place. And so often through the Lord's earthly ministry, he's leading and teaching them. No, no, there's something greater and grander that's going to take place. And I'm preparing you guys to witness it. Because you're going to be my premier, premier spokesman. The thing is, what we see here is when they give given the command, while they contemplate it, they think it, they're perplexed by it, they do obey. Credit for that, finally, so to speak. They don't go blabbing, they don't go talking until after. So to speak, spoiler alert, the Lord Jesus Christ did rise from the grave. 
That's one little nugget here that I see, again, a minor, but still a proof of the resurrection. If he didn't rise from the dead, then they were in blatant disobedience of the man that they called Lord and Master. Pretty contradictory to be going around saying that this man is my Lord and Master, my God. He told me to do something, and I said, nuts to you, so to speak. Again, proof that everything that he said would take place did take place. Because they held their tongues until the appropriate moment. After. When it all become clear. Again, proof of the resurrection. Proof of who Jesus Christ is. Validation. All of that that took place on the mountaintop would come in greater light after the resurrection meeting with Moses and Elijah, the command of the Father, all of that. You can imagine the other disciples, what happened up there? How come you guys didn't tell us? He told us not to. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. But a time for instruction as we come further down, as they're contemplating, and we move into verse 11. And they asked him, saying, so they kind of change gears on him here in verse 11. As they, they asked him, saying, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? We get into a bit of discussion now, a conversation that takes place. And they begin by asking a question. Why did the scribes say Elijah must come first? Obviously, it was something that was on their mind. But why were they fixated on the person of Elijah? And why the fact that he must come first? Well, it was the beginning of God's plan to restore the kingdom to Israel. Keep your finger here in Mark. We've got a couple of verses, passages we're going to take a look at. First, we'll turn to Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. Find Matthew, just a few pages to the front of your Bible then. Malachi 3. We'll look there first. Malachi 3.1 says, Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. I will send my messenger. But now turn to verse, or chapter 4, verse 5. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So the prophet Malachi makes it very clear that Elijah is going to come first before Messiah, before the culmination of all things that God promised. So they weren't just picking randomly some great uh, figure from the past. That's what the prophets declared would take place. But not only that, uh, let's look at Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah Chapter 40, beginning in verse 3. 
where it says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert the highway of our God. Again, prepare the way of the Lord. Someone was going to be coming. And that someone, the prophet said, was Elijah. Perhaps the experience on the mountaintop brought this to mind for them. Again, these men were men of the word. The people, the Jewish people, were known as those of the book. The written word, how powerful, how important it was to them, both culturally but also spiritually. They knew their word. They knew their scriptures. But also this experience up there might have brought it to mind. If Elijah is to come first, why did he just go away? If this is the moment and Elijah is supposed to become, we just saw him. Where did he go? What kind of, you know, what's, what's going on? What's taking place? They were living in anticipation of the kingdom. That's always what's foremost on their mind. Kingdom, the restoration of that grand and glorious kingdom of David that was promised. And they were right at the very cusp that they finally thought, this is it. We've been told that Elijah will come first before all these things take place, and here he is. But wait a minute. Now what? So they had questions. Questions asking their Lord now. What is taking place? Because we put it in Jesus' response. And back in, in our passage in Mark, he responds to their questions first, rather straightforwardly. In verse 12, he said, Then he answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Okay, first. Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. Yes, Elijah is coming first. And he will restore all things. And we saw in our reading in Malachi, where we left out one verse. Malachi 4, chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. Behold, I send you the prophet I send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. It's a mission and a ministry of restoration. He's going to restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers, the heart, the intellect, the emotions, the will, the whole man, the whole person to be restored, to be that restoration of relationship. Have you ever had a broken relationship in a family? A separation? A distance. Did you ever long for that to be restored? 
those wounds to be mended. To have fellowship again, to sit down with that person again, to laugh with them, to joke with them, to embrace them. I think in some degree we all have. That's what he's talking. This is the heart of God. To restore fellowship, to repair those broken bonds, to reunite. It's interesting, too, what he says there between fathers and children. Now, again, there's so much here, and I don't want to be pass over the, the, the importance of the mother-child relationship. But it's interesting what the Lord says here and how, where he focuses and he drives that in. I've always been curious and part of it, I think that when I look at the word of God, what he shows me here and other places, why he zeroes in on the relationship between fathers and children and why that is so vitally important. Part is because God reveals himself as father. And the enemy will do anything he can to break the relationship between the heavenly father and his children. And if he can do something to twist, to pervert, to ruin the earthly relationship one has with one's earthly father, it taints how one views their heavenly father. You ask most people how they view God and come back later and how they view their heavenly or their earthly father, they may not realize it, but those two are going to have an uncanny similarity. If they viewed their earthly father as a domineering, you know, controlling, Negative, negative (laughs) image. That's going to be how they view God. And the enemy knows it better than anyone. And that's why he puts a bullseye on the backs of fathers. Because he can ruin the relationship between us and our Heavenly Father. But praise God, he's more powerful. Where sin abounds, grace abounds more. And God does his, some of his greatest work in the hearts. And that's where he's focusing in on. So he said, this is why Elijah's coming. This is why he's coming, to restore that. To prepare the way that all things may be restored, ultimately in relationship to the Heavenly Father. So anyways, the Lord answers rather straightforwardly there. But he also then goes on, and Jesus responds with a question of his own then, back in, in Mark. Saying, and how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? And what about the Son of Man? You have this fixation, you question whether where Elijah is and when he's coming. What of the Son of Man? He doesn't say it, but basically, what about me? It's interesting, this title, this term, 
son of man. It is the most used title or term that the Lord Jesus Christ uses concerning himself. Over 80 times, 84 I think, but I didn't take time to count them all exactly throughout the, the, the Gospels. He uses it more than any other. And there's two places in the Old Testament that we see this specific term. One, we see it in the prophet Ezekiel. We won't turn there, but if you ever take time throughout the entire prophetic book of Ezekiel, when the Lord is speaking, he refers to Ezekiel as son of man, son of man, son of man. Now, part of this is just the reality that simply Ezekiel was a representative of humanity, God's representative towards the nation. But the Lord's use of this title could also have the effect of drawing one's attention to the Jewish individual, to Ezekiel's prophecies concerning judgment on Israel, judgment on the surrounding nations, but ultimately the restoration and reconciliation of the nation. Again, that representative going towards the nation. But there's also another place where this term is used in the book of David, or Daniel, I'm sorry. If you'd like to turn there, I know I've got you jumping around a bit, but Daniel chapter 7. <clears throat> Daniel chapter 7 Verse 13, one of Daniel's prophetic visions, he says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should, should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. We shall not pass away. In his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. One like the Son of Man. Coming before the Ancient of Days. Coming before the Almighty. And it was clear in, in, in this passage that this one, referred to as the Son of Man, has the right to come before the throne of God. Boldly come in before the throne of the Almighty God. Not only come that he has been given authority, authority to rule, authority to judge. He is the one. And this title portrays Jesus as the representative man. Our representative. I was reading in one of the commentaries that you, some break it down that the, that the Son of God is, is Jesus Christ deity name or title so to speak that's a clumsy way to put it but it is divine title son of David is his cultural name or title son of man is his racial title now some may find that offensive because we've broken things up into race throughout our history But ultimately, there is only one race, the human race, Adam's race, 
And Jesus Christ has identified himself with us so completely that that will never change. And that he is our perfect representative, our perfect spokesman, the one who can boldly go before the throne and advocate on our behalf. This title designates him as the last Adam, distinct to the first that we see Paul talk of in 1 Corinthians. It also sets him forth as the second man from heaven over the first from earth. That he supersedes. Where Adam lost the kingdom, so to speak, Christ regains it. Where Adam fell, Christ triumphs. This term, this title emphasizes and connects Jesus Christ with his mission of salvation and reconciliation that is accomplished through his death, burial, and resurrection. He is our representative. And he identifies with us. He knows us. You know, having a lord, having a, a master, a boss. Maybe in our culture, that's as close as we can get to is a boss that identifies with us. You ever had one when troubles arose? Never said, you know, you got a problem. I always said, we. We've got an issue. We need to stick late. We need to do this. When there was success, you say, I accomplished this. Or do you say, we accomplished? Now again, maybe I'm tiptoeing on heresy there. Because <laughs> only Christ accomplished our salvation at the cross. But through our faith in him, we share in all the blessings, in all the inheritance, in a way that baffles my mind, it sometimes hurts to think about. That I would be co-heir with Jesus Christ of all things. <laughs> How can that be? It just is. But imagine all these conversations, all this going on as they're meandering, <laughs> making their way back down the mountain. Just when they thought they knew who Jesus Christ is, they always get more. He helps them to see a bigger God, a bigger Savior than they realized. But as we wrap up this conversation, this time as they're moving down the mountain, the Lord wraps, come, brings it back to Elijah in verse 13, saying, But I say to you that Elijah has also come. And they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written to him. Finally, Jesus ends with a statement confirming and validating John the Baptist's 
ministry. He says, Elijah has come. In case you were wondering, which obviously you were, let me make it clear. It's not a matter of if he will come or when he will come. He has come. And it was John the Baptist. And again, how do we know this? Well, at the very beginning of this book, and there's other places we see it, but at the very beginning of Mark's gospel, he begins with that. Mark 1, verse 1. In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written of the prophets, in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. John came. And in Luke 1, 16, we don't have to turn there, but it says that it was John who came in in the spirit and power of Elijah. Says, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This is the message that the angel told Zechariah, John's father, about his miraculous birth coming. If there's any doubt, the scriptures make it clear. Yes, this is Elijah coming. And he fulfilled his ministry just as it was spoken of back in the prophets. Ultimately, when Jesus answers their questions about Elijah, he confirms and proves not merely who John the Baptist was. He confirms and proves who he is. Because if John did all this, pointing the way to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world, then he said, I am the promised one. I am the Messiah. How often it just boggles my mind that some people still will say, Jesus Christ never claimed to be God. Have you not read? Do you not know? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Time and time again. You know, as these men came down the mountain with their Lord, they had the opportunity to reflect and discuss that which, with, which they had experienced on the mountaintop. And through that they saw a bigger God a greater Savior than they realized was with them. Now, it's interesting. We all have, I've mentioned before, our different mountaintop experiences. And I had one, it, it was more of a struggle. <laughs> I remember sharing that with someone. They said, well, what, what do you think God was teaching you at the moment? I was like, I have no idea. I don't know. In that moment, I didn't, but there's that time. Well, have you spent time talking to him about it? You see, when we have a mountaintop experience, we don't want to miss the opportunity to enjoy the moment 
as I said in the past message. But after, when we are coming down, when there's that time for reflection, and the moment has passed, we don't want to miss the opportunity to discuss the experience. To ask questions of our Lord. What happened? What took place? What were you doing there? He doesn't want to leave us guessing, wondering what happened, what he was doing. We want to take that time to confer with our Lord, to enjoy that moment as well. And may we do that throughout our lives, never neglecting time to talk with our Lord, to reflect as we come down the mountain and we move back into our lives or ministries that we're called to. He wants to give us some instruction. He wants to give us some illumination. He wants to bless us. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you thankful that you are a God who takes us up the mountain and back down again. Always with us. Always there for us. May we ever seek to know you better and proclaim you to those we know and meet. In your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.